You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Amen. Good morning. Welcome here this morning. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up as high as you can, and one of our ushers will be more than happy uh, to get a copy of God's Word in your hand. You can follow along, and uh, if you don't have one at home, take it home with you. We'd love for you to uh, have a copy of God's Word at home. As you turn, I just want to give you a quick update on where we've been. As you know, we weren't here last week. We had the privilege of being uh, at a Pastors and Wives Conference in, uh, in Phoenix, so all the hard places to go to in the winter. It ended up being warmer here than there, so don't feel bad for us. And uh, just to be with other harvest pastors and get to be put into it, it's actually nice, believe it or not, it's nice to be sitting where you sit sometimes and not up here doing all the talking. I know you think pastors like to talk all the time, we actually like to sit where you sit sometimes. And so we had a great time uh, being put into, we had four different, four or five different sessions of other harvest pastors preaching to us, uh, preaching to a pastor's heart, and so we left really encouraged. Uh, encouraged by this, well, that's what I want to encourage you with, is that we are part of a fellowship that is, uh, it is thriving in Jesus' name. And uh, I'm excited to say that we're probably the healthiest we've ever been as a fellowship, and 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 we, we left that, just excited about what God is doing. We're focusing on the other pastors, focusing on all the right things and not focusing on all the wrong things. And it's not always the case. And so we're really encouraged uh, with what God's doing. And so I just want you to know there's, it's a blessing to be a part of something greater than here now, this little thing here. It's a blessing to be a part of Harvest Bible Fellowship. And so I pray you're as grateful for them and the fellowship we have as I am. And so I encourage you with that. also got to spend some time with uh, Luis Peralta. He's the pastor in Mexico City that's going to be planting Omar, the, the man that was here a few weeks ago. And so I had to sit with him, and he's, he, I would say he's an old man, but he's an older man, wise and humble and gentle, and just resonation of hearts with us. And I just, I just know it's going to be a great partnership. I left that meeting going, this is, this is of the Lord. And he, you know, he said to us, they have a church of about 180, the, the, the Harvest Mexico right now is 180. And he's like, we're just going to tell our people, whoever wants to go to the church plant, go. If, if 50 people go, they go. Like, what kind of heart is that? So many pastors want to hold on, hold on. He just wants to build the kingdom of God. We left really encouraged. And so I look forward to all that's ahead for us. And so I want to encourage you with that. It's, uh, we're not doing this alone. We have another a bunch of pastors and churches that are doing this with us. Um, but Acts chapter 10 is where we are today. And we've been uh, studying since January about being on mission. This whole book of Acts is about being on mission. And the unstoppable church, what it looks like, it's spirit-empowered people filled with a vibrant faith living on mission for Jesus Christ. And so all the questions come into many of our minds uh, throughout this whole series since, since the beginning of January is this, like, how broad is the scope of our mission? Is it just for our region? Is it for North America? Is the message of Jesus to cross cultural barriers? Are we to aim to convert people from other religions and regions to the truth of Jesus? Many people tend, today tend to think of Christianity as a Western religion or a North American thing, but in fact, as we look at the Bible, uh, we see that God's heart and God's scope and God's vision for the spread of Christianity is far beyond a certain people group and geographical location. The gospel is global. Amen? Amen. The gospel is global, and the gospel is for who? Who's it for? It's for everyone. And we see that so clearly in Acts chapter 10. We see God's call for us as a church in Acts chapter 10 to get beyond our narrow, focused thinking of thinking the gospels for people that think like us and talk like us and act like us and get to this point where we really, really realize that the gospel is for the nations and we're to have a part in that call that God has called us to. And so we're going to study the whole chapter of chapter 10 today. And so I'm going to speak fast and you're like, so what's different about that? I'm going to speak really fast today, so like, listen up and hold on. Um, 
Acts chapter 10, I'm going to read every word because we believe in our church, if you're new with us, that, that every word matters and every word counts. Every word here is on purpose. There's no filler in God's word. And so first point I want you to write down before I dive in literally is simply this. The good news of Jesus destroys all human divides. That's what we're going to learn in Acts chapter 10. The good news of Jesus destroys all human divides. And up until this point, up until this point in Acts chapter 10, the, the gospel was thought of by the Jews as for us. We are God's people. It's for, it's for people that are of the Jewish descent. Jesus is only for us. And yet God is about to, in this chapter, take the church to places the Jews would have never expected to go and to people the Jews would have never expected to meet. God is about to bust wide open the doors of the advancement of the church. And this is the longest narrative in the book of Acts, and it's so important, it's repeated three different times. It's the TSN turning point of the early church. It's the game changer. It's a opening up a whole new world to the mission of what the church is all about and who the church is all about. So let me start reading Acts chapter 10. I'm going to read little sections, explain them, and then apply them uh, midway through and at the end, just so you understand where we're going. Here's what it says in chapter 10. This matters to us today, where we sit. At Caesarea, there is a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, how cool is this? An angel of the Lord visits this guy and says to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in, in wonder, no, in what? In terror. Every person who met God or Jesus or an angel in the New Testament, it was, first of all, it was a terrifying thing. He's so holy. And he stared at him in terror. And he said, what is it, Lord? Oh, our only response is, God, I'm here to speak. And he said to him this, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among who, those who, who attended him. And, he, and having relayed everything to them, he sent them on to Joppa. So the scene of this whole chapter is simply this. It's in Caesarea. It's an important coastal town with a huge Roman presence. It's one of the provincial capitals of the Romans that was home to government administration, a major a harbor city. And in this city lived a guy named Cornelius. And uh, he was a pretty well-to-do guy with some influence and some clout. He was a centurion of the Italian court. And so the Italian army was kind of arranged with uh, 6,000 men, uh, a legion, called a legion, divided into 10 cohorts of 600 men. And centurions commanded a hundred of these men. So he wasn't like the highest rank official, but he was like, he was no slouch either. He was a guy who had some pretty good clout. And, and the centurions were considered the backbone of the army. They weren't the guys in the office making all the decisions. Like, okay, here's, they were the guys leading the charge. They were like the, the guys, guys, the warriors. And so here's this guy leading a hundred men. And, and he was a guy that, what's his character like? Well, it says it right here. He was a guy who was a devout man. Very, very religious guy. He feared God with all of his household. In other words, he realized that, hey, I'm not God. Not like our culture today where we think we're all gods. He's like, I'm not God. There is a God, and he stands alone, and he has authority. So he had this bit of a reverential respect for God. He gave alms generously to the people, it says here. You're reading your text with me? He gave, gave alms generally, generously to the people. In other words, he was... He's like, I've got all this stuff. It's not just for me. It's to bless the poor. So he's giving to the poor and, and doing the things that he's supposed to do. He also prayed continually. He had this internal like desire to somehow connect with God. And this is a guy that, if you study this clearly, he probably wasn't 
born again. He probably wasn't saved at this point. He's a Gentile. So he's a guy that was kind of snooping around the Jewish faith. He was sitting in the back row because Gentiles couldn't sit in the front row. And he was a religious guy trying to do all the right things and stirring in his heart was a sense there is a God out there. I got to find him. I got to find him. Much like the people who come to our church that haven't found Christ yet, but they're seeking, right? And, and they're, they're, um, certain level of buy-in towards God, but not understanding Jesus and the full implications in their lives, like the, the person who does good things and, and tries to be the good moral person who even prays sometimes. And, you know, there's a lot of religious people that pray. We know that, right? Maybe to the, the wrong, to the wrong God, but they pray somehow trying to connect with God. And maybe it's one of those people that starts their own charity and, really worshiping God to the best of his knowledge. And so uh, this is Cornelius, and he's one day, the ninth hour, it says here, in the ninth hour, he's praying. This is one of the most, 3 p.m., one of the most important Jewish times of prayer. So he was like the religious of the religious of the religious. He was religious to the nines guy. And he's praying, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this angel shows up. Can you imagine being in that place? Never really knowing God, but knowing there's something about God, and all of a sudden, the angel shows up. It's like Ebenezer Scrooge. You know, the ghost shows up, and he's like, this is sort of Cornelius. It's not a ghost. It's an angel. And, and the angel basically gives him this message. And he says, hey, your prayers and your alms, verse 4, have ascended as a memorial before God. In other words, God's noticed that you're earnest. God's noticed that you're seeking him the best of your ability. And so really what he's saying here, he gives him a message. He says, why don't you go to Joppa, find Peter, tell him I sent you to bring him back here because something significant is going to happen. I love Cornelius, eh? He doesn't even know God yet, but look at his obedience. He doesn't question. He, he so wants to know God. He's like, well, I guess God's going to do something. Why else would he send an angel and make all this? And so he just sends these guys, and he goes to Simon's house, the tanner, not Simon the sorcerer. We studied about him, right? But Simon the tanner. We kind of skip over that. And like, why does God tell us like what he did for a profession? Because it shows us about Peter, I think. Simon was a tanner, and in the Old Testament, you weren't supposed to come in contact with anything unclean, including dead animals. Well, what does a tanner deal with? Leather. So he's dealing with dead animals all the time, and where's Peter? Where he's not supposed to be. Peter obviously learned well from his mentor, Jesus. What was Jesus doing? Eating with sinners and tax collectors all the time? Peter's following in Jesus' footsteps. He's eating with this, he's hanging out with this guy that he shouldn't be hanging out with. And so that's an important thing, because I think it shows us the heart of Peter. So this is all going down. And uh, Cornelius has no idea that, that this is about to be the, the greatest moment of his life. He's going to be about, one, about to be one of the first Gentile converts to Christianity. And so that's the first part here. Then meanwhile, going to verse 9, meanwhile, back in Joppa. You ever watch the Dukes when you were kids? Meanwhile, back on the ranch. <laughs> Another scene, different place. Here's what's happening. God is busy working out the other end of this deal. God's so good, he's not going to make this whole advancement of the church, advancement of the gospel thing ambiguous. He's not going to make this message of reconciliation just uh, by chance for some people. He, he wants to make it clear. And so Peter, the next day, is, these guys are now this convoy from the Italian centurion or Roman centurion. They're coming on their way. They're approaching the city. Peter went up on his housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So it was noon. And he was hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they're preparing it, he fell into a trance. So here's Peter. He's in Joppa. He's hanging out with his buddies. And he's like, hey, it's noon. I'm hungry taking them too long to make the meal. So instead of checking internet and surfing the net and sending emails and talking the weather, what's he do? Again, a good example for us. What's he do with his time, a spare time? He goes to pray. And so here's Peter, and he's, it's not the time you should be praying, but he's up on, goes on the roof to pray. It's, you know, outside steps, 
Hot culture, flat roof, he's praying. And he falls in this trance. God shows up in his life too. And uh, look what's happening here. He, it says the heavens were open. Same thing it says when Jesus was baptized, showing us what? It's not just a random chance thing. This is a divine moment where Jesus was baptized and the heavens were open. The loud voice was like, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Remember? The dove came. and this is, this is clearly a divine moment that's significant for the body of believers. And so this vision... God can speak to us in visions, right? Not the normal way God speaks. Both of these are not the normal way God speaks. But when God does something specific and intentional in the word, he makes it so that no, there's no room for, is this of God or is this not? And so he saw the heavens open and something, this is, a, this is a weird vision, let's be honest. He saw something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. The picture is a great big sheet being let down from heaven to earth, and in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds there. And then there's, here's the message Peter gets from God. This is, if you find this is weird, I do too. And there came a voice that says this, rise, Peter, kill and eat. All the hunters in here are like, and all God's people said, all the hunters said, amen. <laughs> we got some guys that are out in the field, are halfway out to the field, there's guns out scoping a squirrel right now. They're like, what's wrong with that message? Right? Rise and kill and eat. But yet for Peter, this is like, what, God? You have to understand, in Peter's day, this wasn't a normal message you gave to the, the Jews. Peter was a Jewish guy by birth, we know that. And, and the Jews had this strict eating plan that God had given them. Remember Leviticus 11? Like, eat this, don't eat this, eat this, this is clean, this is unclean. Leviticus 20 tells us that God had these rules in place to set aside his people that they might be holy as he is holy, that they might be a reflection to the world around them, that... That God is different than everybody else and God is holy and separate. This, uh, this still in the world around us. There's, there's, there's a differentness to God. And so Peter's thinking Leviticus and he's, this isn't adding up and he's confused by this. And so, of course, we know Peter's personality, right? He's not just a passive go with the, go with the flow kind of guy. Look what he says. Peter says this. I don't think he's being antagonistic here. He's not being uh, rebellious here. He's sort of, I think, in this place of like, is this a test, God? He goes, look, he says, by no means, Lord. Like, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Like, I, I'm a Jew. I, I want to honor you. I want to be faithful to you. And look what the voice comes again to him from saying a second time. You can underline this one. It's important for us. It helps put a lot of things in context. I'll explain it a little bit later. But what God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, do not call Common. Imagine Peter, but, but, but you told us these things were unclean. Uh, obviously, he wasn't really paying attention too well when Jesus in Mark 7 said, like, hey, now that I'm here, now that I'm here, like, it's not about what goes in from the outside that defiles you. It's what's already in the inside, the sin in your heart that defiles you. So don't, don't be getting messed up in this stuff. And the disciples heard that, but they obviously didn't hear it. It's the heart that defiles us, right? Not what goes in our bodies. It's the heart, the, the sin that reigns within. And so Peter's like us, a bit of a slow learner, and so... Now this is coming from the mouth of God. And this happens three times. Look, three times. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed, so this happened three times, and the thing that was taken up at once to heaven, so like this sheet is there. It's not the thing. It's not the vision. It's like this sheet has gone up into heaven. Three times is a theme in Peter's life, right? Three times he denies Christ. Remember John 18? I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll never deny you. I don't know who that guy is. Jesus who? Nah, not with that guy. 
John 21, Jesus reaffirms him three times, like, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And then here we see three times he's saying no to God, no to God again. We're looking like, Peter, don't you get it? He's, he's a lot like us, let's be honest, right? He, he's a lot like us, a little dense. I, I'll speak for myself, a lot like me. A little dense, a bit slow. But as he's thinking about all these things, inwardly perplexed, sitting in this confused stupor on the roof, he's not even worried about lunch at this time, I don't think. To what this vision had means that he saw, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, they stood at the gate. See how God orchestrates all this? Peter's on his roof going like in the hot sun. What's going on? They're like, isn't that a coincidence? And they called out to whether Simon, who's called Peter, was lodging there. So Peter's on the roof. He's clambering down the roof and he's pondering this vision. The Spirit says to him, behold, three men are looking for you. It makes it really abundant. So God's not ambiguous, right? Abundantly clear. Rise and go down and, and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. In other words, like, Peter, don't argue this time. Don't question me. Don't know me. Just for once, please, Peter, just go. And Peter went down and, to the men and said this, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason you're coming? And they, told, they tell him, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Peter wants you to tell him something. Cornelius wants you to tell him something, so Peter invited him to be his guest. Again, super significant, because in this day, this didn't happen. Jews and Gentiles, they weren't supposed to hang together. In fact, they're supposed to be at polar ends of the not even the same room, polar ends of the, of the city. The next day, he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So he took a little convoy of his own, maybe for protection, maybe because he wanted to, he wants to go alone, right? Have some backup. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them, of course, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. So Cornelius was like, man, if God's going to visit me in a dream, he's going to do something. Gather all the people around me and whom I know. God's in the middle of doing something here, and I've been seeking God for a long time. Maybe this is the moment I meet him. So when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter, being the good guy, as he did, does this often in Acts, he's like, get up, man, get up, dude. I'm, not, I'm just a guy. I, too, am a man, verse 26. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. His whole crew gathered there. And he said to them, you, know, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or even visit anyone from another nation. So like guys, like I am breaking all the laws by being here, but guess what? God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent me. Cornelius tells him the story. I saw this dream. God told me my prayers have been heard. He told me to send for you, the lodging with Simon, a guy by the sea. So I sent for you at once. And now, voila, here you are. And here we all are in the presence of God. Look at this, verse 33. Here we all are in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So this is a whole new ballgame for the Jewish people right now. Like, like this, this is, hasn't really happened ever before, and we can't skip over verse 28. So like the, the, the Jews were considered the clean, the Gentiles were the unclean, and never shall the two come together. And yet here is Peter with Cornelius, two guys who saw a vision from God standing together face to face with like, boom, what's next? 
Well, the whole vision clarifies for what is happening here. This is amazing. This is one of the most pivotal moments of the early church. That's why it's mentioned three times in Acts so we don't miss it. This is, this is, this is one of the most pivotal moments for the mission of the church to fully accomplish all that God wanted them to accomplish. This is a God-initiated, God-directed moment where he busts through the major cultural barriers and all the prejudices, get this, all the prejudices of the people. Up until this point, here's the deal. God was always the God of the who? God of the Jews. And the Messiah is going to come for who? For us, because we're awesome and nobody else is and we're special and everybody else kind of stinks. And they built this little wall around them that almost like, like, look at us, we're the Jews and everybody else, like you're out there. Ha <laughs> ha, sorry to be you. And now God's saying, but, but everything I've called unclean before, like I'm doing something brand new. And so anything I've called unclean, like here, here's, the, here's the main point of this, that the, the gospel is not just for you, the Jews, it is for the entire world. I'm not just a God of one nation, I'm a God of the nations. Amen. And I want to extend your mission beyond what your little minds can comprehend and beyond what your prejudiced hearts can fathom. I want to expand this mission to the Gentiles. This wouldn't have been a happy message for the Jews. The Gentiles were like the guys on the other side of the tracks. They're like the, the, we don't even want to talk to you or visit with you because that's the way it was. Remember Jonah? I preached to Jonah in the summer. Remember his, his first response when God said, hey, why don't you go to Nineveh? What was his response? No way, Jose. They're Gentiles. What if they hear and respond? We could never have that. We don't want that. And yet here's God. Here's God in the New Testament as the, he's teaching his people about the, the mission he's called them to. Here's, here's God saying, hey, you know what? This mission is for everybody. This message is for the world. Jews and Samaritans didn't, didn't get along. Jews and Gentiles hated each other. It's like North and South Korea. It's like the Hutus and the Tutsis of the Rwandan genocide. And yet God in this chapter is going to break down this barrier to the gospel that was keeping Jews in and everybody else out. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch a few chapters ago when he became saved? Well, that was a little crack in the wall. The bulldozers are moving in and that wall is going to be gone now and the whole world is going to be opened up to the message of Jesus. This is awesome. Any, any Jews in this place? The rest of us then are What? Gentiles. You see the significance of this? Put up your hand if you're a Gentile. This means we're included. Amen. This doesn't fire you up. This, is like, this has no meaning to my life. Are you kidding me? This has meaning to all of our lives because up until this point, we're on the outside looking in. Now we can like bust through the walls and get into the presence of God and know the reality of salvation. And God can be our father. We can be a part of his family too. This is significant. I think of in the world when walls have been broken down before. There's been a lot of walls broken down in our world. And, and I think of one of the most significant ones I've seen in my life is in 1989. I was in grade eight or nine. I can't remember which. It's a long time ago. The Berlin Wall. Remember that thing for those of you guys who are old enough to remember? I remember watching on TV this wall that went between East and West Germany. It was, so I grew up. It was just this is what it was. And, 
And, and then one day the government in 89 decided it's not going to, we don't, we don't need the wall anymore. And this trench that we've dug between and all these pitfalls that cars can't get over and you can't go over and see it. Also, all of a sudden they're like, we're going to take the wall down. Remember, remember that day in 89 when like people were climbing over the wall and dancing on the wall and jumping over the wall and set, dancing with the people they haven't met before. And, and you know, they, some had relatives on the other side and, and taking chunks out of the wall. And like, this is the greatest day in German history. Like this wall is gone. This is the greatest day in Christian history. This wall is completely gone. The gospel is for everybody, not just to select few, for everybody. So two monumental realities with this. We want to get to two monumental realities. One, you have to wonder what all the food's about, what all the animals and stuff are about. One is this, and it's not the big, the big idea of this whole passage, but it, it is part of it, is, is the, all the Old Testament food laws, they're gone now. And this is what this passage is teaching us. When Jesus said, don't eat this, don't eat that. This is what separates you from everyone else. The New Testament, and Jesus is telling us that it's not what you eat and don't eat anymore that sets you apart. It's the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now that I am here, the Old Testament food laws, they're gone. The reality is through Jesus, everything has changed. And we don't need the food laws anymore because there's going to be no distinction between, between the Jews and the Gentiles. We're all on the same team. And so for some of you, this is a good, good day because now you can eat shrimp and love bacon, right? And you always felt bad about eating shrimp and, and chowing down your bacon. We don't have to anymore. Like we, I feel bad for the Israelis. We were over there a few years ago, and they still don't have a bacon cheeseburger yet. <laughs> Obviously, haven't seen Acts chapter 10. You're like, read Acts 10! It's phenomenal. <laughs> so for you, all you shrimp fanatics and bacon lovers, that's one of the applications of this. This is why you're like, well, how come we don't do the Levitical laws anymore? How come we don't follow these? This is why Jesus fulfills all those. So we don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. But here's the bigger, here's the bigger one. Here's the bigger one. The bigger picture here is salvation. God is opening the door of the gospel to the whole world. This is significant and life-changing. This is a new day for the people of God and the church of Jesus Christ. There's now no more barriers when it comes to God's people and God's family. Here's what, here's what I think is really trying to say. God's family is to be a family without any prejudices or any barriers between us and anybody else. There should be no wall keeping us in here with the mission and the message. There should be no wall keeping anyone out of here. This is like, if you have any prejudice in God's family, you've missed the heart of God passage. We'd all be like, oh, I don't have any prejudice. You kidding me? I'm I'm Canadian. We don't have any prejudice. We love everybody. Let's be honest. Even in the Christian church, there exists prejudice against other people that just ought not to be in the family of God. It doesn't coincide at all with the message of reconciliation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not even naive enough to think that there's not even some people in this room who don't carry prejudice in this room when you walked in here today. Some of you racial prejudice. I'm from such and such a background, or I have this color skin, and so we're better than everyone else, and like no one else deserves the message. No one else should be coming into my home or my life or my church. It's just wrong. That wall is smashed here in Acts chapter 10. Others of us are like these, these social prejudice. Well, I live here, and people who live here I shouldn't associate with, or people who live up here I shouldn't, I shouldn't. They don't deserve the message of Jesus Christ, and I only hang with the people who think like me and act like me and talk like me. That, that's not the message of the gospel. God wants to smash, if you're here today, that goes to smash that wall right out of your heart. Some of us live in this cultural 
prejudices. And we think because we are North American Canadians and we've grown up in this Canadian culture that somehow our culture is right and everyone else's culture is wrong. And it's, where do we ever get that? Where do we ever get that? Some economic and, and well, I hang with people in the same class as me and, and some educational. I only, I only want to reach out to the smart people and I want to welcome smart people in my home and my life in the same, same category I'm in, some theological. If you don't believe exactly what I believe and the way I believe it, then there's no place for you in my life or my church and there's no place for you in the message of the gospel. You know how backwards that is? You know the one place prejudice should never, ever Come up? The church. You know another place? The home of a believer. Follower of Jesus Christ. Prejudice is devastating to God's family in any ministry. And I believe there's far too many Christians that still walk around with this prejudice going on in their hearts. If God asked me to share with, no way. I don't share with people like that. God asked me to invite someone, uh uh-uh. Really? The gospel is to have no walls keeping you in. There's nobody that you shouldn't be wanting to share Jesus Christ with. There's no one that should repulse you and be like, ooh, share Christ with them? Uh uh-uh. uh. There's nobody that, should be nobody that knocks on your door and you're like, oh, come into my house. There should be none of that. There should be no one that walks through the doors of our church and we kind of like part like the Red Sea and never, never want to. Or, or leave the other side because we see someone on the other. There should, there should never be that in the church. That is, that is missing the whole point of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Let me ask you this as we move on before we move on to the next. Are there any prejudices in your life that God needs to really break down today? Be honest with yourself. First person in your mind that you're like, man, maybe God will want me to share Christ with them and you cross them off your list. Instead, God's circling that person on your list. Or people that you try to avoid because you somehow don't want to come in contact with somebody that's not like you or how goofy we are, right? Or you think you're better than other people and so here's the awesome reality of the gospel. There ought to be no barriers between any human being with the reality of Jesus Christ. There's no place for prejudice even subtle in the family of God. I don't know about you, but I... I love seeing this being played out. Every time I go to a conference or a concert and you ever been to a stadium where there's like thousands of people or a church where there's thousands of people from all different places of life, from, from all different nationalities and you're worshiping God. And sometimes I do this, even did this last week at our pastors and wives conference with, you know, there's a person from Romania in front of me, a pastor's wife from Romania, a pastor's wife from Mexico behind me. And, and I just look around like, man, this is awesome. We've never been in the same room ever apart from the reality of Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel is. This is what heaven's going to be like, right? Revelation 7, like every tribe and tongue and nation and language is going to be there. I love sitting in those stadiums, worshiping in stadiums where you're just like worshiping your heart out and you're, it's, it's loud with the, 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 the spirit of God rejoicing. And you just look around and you're like, wow, this is amazing. There's, there's no way in under the heaven that we'd ever be in the same room apart from Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is what your life ought to look like. This is what our church ought to look like. This is what we pray our church looks like. We pray that we're not just a group of people who... Think, act, walk, talk the same. What a boring church. 
church doesn't even reflect the reality of what heaven's going to be like. We want to be a church that's like, yeah, open arms. We don't care where you come from. We don't care where you're going. We don't care what, what you look like or, or what your status is. We want you to come in, come in. This is what's happening here for the church. The mission of the church is being is exploding to places, like I said earlier, that the Jews never thought they'd go to people they never thought they'd meet. This is where it takes us in our lives too. Here's the second thing I want you to write down. Just two points today to keep it simple for you. Second thing I want you to write down is this. The good news of Jesus is available to all who respond by faith. The good news of Jesus is available to all who respond by faith. Look at verse 34. This is a God moment. They're there in the presence of God. And they're like, tell us. Tell us about God. Tell us about Jesus Christ. So what does Peter do? Verse 34. He's got this candid audience in front of him. He opens his mouth and starts preaching. I, I love this about Peter. Every time he has an opportunity, what does he do? He preaches. Is he in church right now? Nope. Is he a pastor right now? No, he's, he's a preacher, right? Do you realize that our church is called to be just like Peter? Every time there's someone in front of us that's asking for, uh, asking for the reality of like God and, and, and you know what our response is supposed to be? Just open our mouths. You know how many preachers are in our church? You think there's one. Guess how many there really are? 650. There's 650 preachers in this church with the reality of the gospel message. This is our mission. Peter shows us he opens his mouth and it's not to be fed. Most of us open our mouths to be fed, no problem, but to feed others the truth of Jesus? Different deal, right? He's opening his mouth to feed others. And look what he says. I'm going to read it all, then explain it. God-ordained event. Peter opens his mouth. Here's what he says. Truly understand this, that our God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable, fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, for he is the Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and of the dead. To him be, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, guess what? The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, so the Jewish people, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on, get this, even the Gentiles. Who would have thought it? For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God or worshiping God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing his people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. good news of Jesus is available to all who respond by faith. This shows us the nature of our God. Listen to this. It shows us that God shows no partiality. You can write these three things down. I'll explain them. God shows no partiality. Saw it right there in verse uh, 34. The rest of this passage teaches that Jesus is void of all prejudice. This passage shows that the Holy Spirit is non-discriminatory to all who would turn to Jesus Christ by faith. This is the God that we serve. 
This is the God that we serve. He shows no partiality. What's partiality? What's one who shows no partiality? One who shows no partiality is one who, who doesn't unjustly treat one person better than another. It's one who, who doesn't show favoritism when he shows no partiality. It's one who's, who's, who's actually a respecter of persons. But this teaches that God has the same response to everyone consistently. He's consistent. He shows no partiality. Romans 2.11 says that when we stand before God on judgment day, guess what? We stand before God on judgment day. There's no like, oh, you come from, oh, you're related to, oh, you speak. He judges us all equally. This is the flip side of that passage in Romans 2.11. This shows us that, 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 that for those who come and humbly bow before God and seek his face, guess what? God responds in the same way. He doesn't look at any of the things that we tend to look at as human beings. He just sees a human soul bowing down to their God. And, and every person who bows down, guess what God does? He lifts up. He shows no partiality. God isn't like us. God isn't walking into a room and sizing, sizing someone up and like, oh, I think I'm better than them, not quite so much as them. And God's not like that. God doesn't look at us to see if, if somehow we fit into his mold and if we're cool enough for him or not cool enough for him. I, I believe God does see our differences and his distinctions. He doesn't create all these different nationalities and cultures. I think he glories in that. He doesn't not see that. He values that and cherishes that as creative power. But at the same time, he shows no discrimination on how he reacts to people. All have access to him through Jesus Christ. See this? All can have the good news of the peace of God through Jesus Christ. He eagerly welcomes people who turn to him by faith. And our family portrait in heaven is going to include people you'd never think of inviting to the photo shoot. Our family portrait in heaven is going to include people we never would have thought to invite to the photo shoot. I'm sure I'm going to get there. I'm like, what? You're in my family. They're going to look at me like, you are? I'm more surprised than you are. This is the reality of our God. This peace, this war that we fight against God, it can be silenced through Jesus Christ. This peace with other people that we often have, these discrepancies, this, this war against other people, we can have peace with God and with others through Jesus Christ. God is, shows no partiality. Jesus is also void of all prejudice. He gets into a Christological theme, which just means it's a theme about Christ, and he talks about all that Jesus was from his baptism on. Look at this. He's like, you know what happened? Jesus came. God anointed Jesus. I already talked about his baptism, how that all went down. That was a big deal in Jesus' day. People didn't sit back and go like, hey, that was normal. That wasn't normal at all. He, he anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. You know what he does? You know, whenever we open our mouths, you know what we have to do? He doesn't get into all the, like, the doctrinal things, all the things that they agreed with or disagreed. You know what he does? He's pointing people to Jesus. Here's who Jesus is. Here's who he was. He was a good guy. But not good in the way we see good. Everything's good for us, right? How's your day? Good. Dinner last night? Good. Even if it was bad, it was good. Kids okay? Good. How was church today? Good. That's not the good that is talking about this passage. When it's talking good in this passage, in the Greek context, this, this is like Jesus is the benefactor. He's, he's someone who does good for all of society. This, this term good is only applied to in, in the New Testament times, gods and heroes and kings. So what Peter's saying is like, hey, look no further than Jesus. He's the God of all gods. He's the hero of all heroes. He's the king of all kings. You know how we know? Because this is what he did for all mankind. 
We are witnesses that all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, he did all these great miracles and all these great teachings and all these great good deeds. But here's his greatest deed. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. He was willing to die. Deuteronomy tells us that to be hung on a tree is like the, the most horrible way to die. It's like a curse. If you're hung on a tree, you're cursed. He was willing to be cursed that we might be blessed. This is the best deed Jesus ever did. The Son of God was willing to, to shamefully be cursed that we might shamelessly come before his, his Father. But he didn't stay dead. Here's also what Jesus did, verse 40. He raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. So Jesus didn't stay in the grave. We know that. That's what Easter's about. He didn't just die on the third day. He rose again, the firstborn of all creation, not to all the people, but and appeared not to all the people, but to all of us who have been chosen by God as witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us it wasn't just like a few random sightings. It was like 500 people at a time. No hallucination hits 500 people at the same time. That we would all know that he is truly the risen Son of God. And who's this message for? He commanded us to preach this. It says here that he's going to judge the living and the dead. Every one of our lives, he's going to judge us. He holds all authority. To him, all the prophets bear witness that, get this, how many people? Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Jesus is void of all prejudice, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness in his name. How many people who believe in him receive forgiveness? Everyone. Well, I know that they ask for forgiveness, but they're from... That's not it. Bow before Jesus, repent of your sin, and by faith turn to him, and guess what? You receive forgiveness of your sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Here's Jesus. He's for everybody. We have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all. One has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The gospel is for every person. You're getting that theme today, I hope. Who's the gospel for? Who will turn to Jesus by faith. Anyone you're tempted to think the gospel's not for, that Jesus can't save, that Jesus won't save? How urgent are you to share the message with everyone? Do you have a heart for the nations? I sang this little song when I was a kid that we can't sing it today because it's politically incorrect. But you know it. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world. I'm going to say it. Thank you. Don't have, have to be politically incorrect in church. Brian was politically correct, incorrect for us. They're all precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Not one person in this world should be exempt from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Holy Spirit shows us that he's also non-discriminatory. As they're still talking, this unexpected thing happens. As they're still talking, Peter's just preaching. He's not expecting this to, to happen. He's not like, okay, guys, wait. Now, now, now the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's just talking. And you know when you're outside and all of a sudden it's really warm out and the wind kind of gets cool quick and the wind blows up and all of a sudden you're hammering everything down on your deck and you're like, the wind is just howling. This is, this is kind of what's happening. Out of nowhere, like, whew, Holy Spirit comes and all these, even the Gentiles, they're speaking in tongues and What's going on? Like, this is for the, this happened in Acts 2. This is for the Jews. And guys, happened the same way. Why? So that there'd be no divisions in the church. There'd be like, there's no second class Christians in the church. He wanted to make sure that the people knew that this is the same movement of God. What happened in Acts 2 is happening now with the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. 
So they welcome the Gentiles and be like, we're a family now. We're all part of what God is doing. There's one Lord and one faith and one baptism. And so, of course, Peter gets this. He doesn't want anyone to be second-class Christians or second-class citizens of heaven. Look what he says. Well, where's water? What do we do next? Well, wow, let's find some water. Throw it all the axe. Believe and be. Let's dunk them. Find some water. Seals the deal. This is the Holy Spirit. This is how he works in people's lives. Ephesians 1 tells us this, 13 and 14. Hear gospel, believe in Jesus Christ, repent and turn to him by faith. The Holy Spirit comes and seals you with the guarantee of your inheritance. This whole goofy theology are out there that somewhere you have to be super spiritual to get the Holy Spirit, that's false. Or they have to believe the right things about God, that's false. It's, it's not like, well, the Holy Spirit comes on those who are super spiritual and those special Christians. The Holy Spirit comes on who? Everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. He's non-discriminatory. He doesn't look at us like, well, got to get better theology on that one. Well, not quite holy enough on that one. We come to Jesus as broken sinners. The Holy Spirit indwells us and empowers us to live the Christian life and share the gospel message. This good news has become in this one chapter from a thing for the Jews to a global phenomenon for the nations. Christianity is not a North American craze or an African fad. It's an eternal worldwide movement. The gospel's for who? It's for everyone. You know what this means for us? We can't just sit here in our comfy little church and our comfy little North American lifestyle and, and, and not care about what happens on the other side of the world. If the gospel's really for everyone, if God has called us to a mission, where does our mission go? It's, it's for Judea, for Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's for St. Catharines, for Canada, for North America, and where else? To the ends of the earth. We, we can't be okay with just building our little portfolios and, and living a comfy, cozy life and coming to church every Sunday and doing our Christian thing, getting our hands up in the air a little bit and getting an inspiring message from God and going home and living like the rest of the world. You know what this means for us? If this is true, if the barriers are gone, then God is opening for us also here today in St. Catharines in 2017. God is also opening for us today the mission field to take the message of Jesus to the world around us. It's a message we can't ignore. We can't be a church that's all about us. We can't be an inward-focused, navel-gazing church. We miss out on the heart of what being a church really is. We're so blessed today because the nations are coming here. The nations are coming here. Where's the number one place to live in, in the world today? Apparently, it's Canada. That, just for record, that's before Trudeau ever became into power. He claims it's because of him. It's not. So they're coming to us. And so we have a responsibility and a privilege now for, as people move into our community, move into our neighbors, what do we do? We, we, we share the message of Jesus with them. And, and there ought to be no people group that we're like, oh, I won't share with them. They don't deserve it. Muslims, we share Christ. Aboriginals in Canada, we share Christ. We don't ignore them. We don't segregate. We share Christ. Go to Niagara Falls and share Christ. And Jeremy was telling me after the first service that he was down there for 15 minutes and I think there was like five or six people from different nations he talked to in like 15 minutes. This is what we get to do. This is, this is our calling as a church to take the message to the nations here, but then globally around the world. And yes, we're going to go to Mexico soon, but, but that's not all we're going to go to, I hope and pray. And start praying with us that God will help us take this message beyond, beyond even Mexico for the glory of the gospel. Did some research this week just to see how many people really need to hear the gospel in our world. God put this in here on purpose for a reason, right? Do you realize this, that today, 
According to the uh, Joshua Project stats, 25% of the world's population, or one point, almost 9 billion people, are included in the top 100 unreached people groups. In other words, 1.9 billion people have never heard of Jesus Christ. We can't sit here and say, who cares? If we've been saved and changed, we can't sit here and say, who cares? And get this, I did some, just did some three samples for you of the people that need to know Jesus Christ. Uh, Koreans in North Korea, 25 million people are non-religious. Only 1.48% are professing Christians, 1% evangelical followers of Jesus Christ. The Bible is completed in a language, but who's going to go and, and teach them? Think of this. In Punjabi, Pakistan, almost 32 million people under the influence of Islam with 0%. How many? 0% evangelical followers of Christ. 0% professing Christians that only have the New Testament. Who's going to translate the old for them? Who's going to share the good news of Jesus Christ? Doesn't that break your heart a little bit? It should break it a lot. In Thailand... The Thai people of northeastern Aysen, 18 million people trapped in Buddhism with only 0.4% professing Christians, only 0.2% evangelical followers of Jesus Christ with only portions of the Bible. They don't even have the whole New Testament. Who cares? God cares. Who cares? We have to care. But I'm good. I'm comfortable. I got Jesus. I got everything I need. Eh. It's not the mission of Jesus Christ. I'm even betting there's people in this room that God might raise up to go to one of those places and see that the barriers are gone. Now I've got to go with the gospel. I get to go with the gospel. Some of you are even here graduating college soon. You're wondering, what am I going to do with my life? Well, here's a great option. Follow Jesus Christ to the mission field. Some of you have been stirring for a long time. What can I do for Jesus? What can I do for Jesus? It starts here, like get out there and share. But maybe you're being called to go. There's smart people in this room might be being called to go and translate parts of the Bible for people who don't have it. I don't know what it looks like, but I know this. We can't sit back here and do nothing with the mission of Jesus Christ. This barrier to the gospel, wall's been smashed. Now that we know it, we have responsibility and privilege to do something about it. If we don't, we don't just miss out on the calling of Jesus. We become this stale, dead, struggling church that becomes simply a country club or a social club. And God takes his spirit away from those churches quicker than the spirit falls on his people in the New Testament. Because that's not what the church is. That's not what the church does. How can we respond to this? Well, there's a few ways we can respond. We're called to respond. You don't don't have an option in this message. I'm just telling you, you don't have an option in this message to not respond. This is so the heart of God. If you miss this message, you miss the heart of God. You miss the heart of God. You've got to stop and check and see where your heart's at. How do we respond? Three ways. Three ways. Pray, give, go. We say this all the time. We talk about missions. Pray, give, go. Pray, give, go. Pray, give, go. We have to be doing one or all of those, the bare minimum. Your list of prayers all week long should not just be about the safety of your kids and the health of your pets and all the things that you pray for. Those are good things and important things, but it should be, God, help people know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Who can I take this message to? You got, we ought to be praying hard for the unreached people groups of the world. We ought to be giving sacrificially and generously to the cause of Christ. We can store up for ourselves a lot of things here on earth. We can buy all the nice houses and all the nice cars. And when we die, guess what they mean? Absolutely zilch, nothing done. We leave them behind. 
But we can be investing our money in missions opportunities and global missions opportunities and pray for those that you can invest your money in that, that would, they would, they would have the opportunity to share Jesus Christ with people who have never heard. Give generously. And last one is to go. I don't believe missions is just for pastors. I don't believe it's just for the spiritual leaders of the church. Missions is for all of us. And so we're giving you missions opportunities. Mexico, there's so many more out there on Harvest Bible Fellowship and beyond. Every believer, I believe, ought to go on mission to another culture. Not so you can change their culture, so you can be changed yourself by the power of Jesus Christ. Missions isn't always about the other person. Sometimes it's about us being faithful and obedient. And man, God changes us through those encounters. If you've never been on a missions trip, you've got to start praying hard that God will take you somewhere where you can see the fullness of the glory of God, a whole different perspective. It'll change your life. Start praying. Start giving. And let's start going. This is the mission of what a church is all about. Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, Niagara, St. Catharines, Niagara, North America, and the ends of the earth. I am praying that we will be a sending church, a church that sees so many people going and so many lives being changed here and around the world, that this little church, we're just a crumb of the slice of the pie of what God's doing in the world. I tell you that all the time, right? We're not it. We're not the deal. We're a crumb of the slice of the pie of what God's doing in the world around us. But let's be faithful with our crumb. Let's be fruitful with our crumb. Let's be fired up for what matters most to Jesus Christ. That's the message of Acts chapter 10. That's what we want to be about as a church. That's what I want to be about as your pastor. That God would use us to take the gospel out and welcome people in. That we would do our part in making sure that every man, woman, and child knows Jesus Christ. That is actually the church. Let's pray that this would be us in Jesus' name. God, we thank you for your word uh, this morning. We thank you that you have packed it so full with eternal truth and eternal promises. We thank you for this call, Lord, and this reminder that there ought to be no prejudices in our heart. Father, would you break down any prejudices that remain in us in this room? If there's any prejudices that, that are here, God, would you break them down and help us see the fullness of the gospel and the mission of Jesus Christ? God, I pray that you'd instill in each of us uh, such an overwhelming view of who you are and, and we'd be so grateful for the salvation we had that we can't keep our mouths shut from sharing it with whoever crosses our paths. God, would you burden us for the lost? Would you burden us for those who are least loved and least elevated in society that we might be your hands and feet in their lives? God, would you take our lives and let them be fully yielded to you, God, that you might use us powerfully for your glory in the world around us. Give us, God, not a me mindset, not a narrow mindset, but a global mindset for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh God, we just want to spend our days loving you and serving you. We want to make the most impact we can with the short time we have here on earth. We know that life is summarized by the little dash between the year we're born and the year we die. Oh God, may you make us faithful and fruitful and fired up for your mission within the dash that we have. And God, I even pray that you'd call some from here, this room right now, some from here, to put it all on the line for you to leave North America behind and to go. And to go where we necessarily wouldn't want to go, to go where we wouldn't expect to go, to meet people we wouldn't expect to meet, and we would be used of you so greatly to even impact some of these people groups that have never heard. May we be like Omar, who was here just a few weeks ago going to Mexico, who came from Mexico 10 years ago to find a better life, found eternal life, and now you're sending him back to the place he ran from. So sweet. 
God, would you find us, would we all find eternal life and be willing to go wherever you call us for your name and for your mission. We love you, Lord. I always want to be a faithful church. Please help us, Lord. Help us see more lives transformed, more people saved, more people worshiping the full reality of who you are through the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.